Hello and welcome to this Matthew Clark Interviews podcast where we sit down with the industry's key figures. Today we're talking to Alan Mahon, founder of Scottish craft beer label Brugada. Brugada, which launched in early 2016, donates 100% of its profits to clean water projects around the world. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Alan. Thanks for having us. Ah, absolutely welcome. Where are you today? Uh, I am in reasonably sunny Edinburgh, which is um, quite unique for a uh, middle of January. Um, but it's nice. It's Friday. Uh, I'm looking forward to the weekend, so it's good. Ah, oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, so we'll crack on then. So, Alan, firstly, for those uh, of our listeners who don't know much about Brugada, can you give us sort of an overview of what Brugada is all about? Sure. I'm presuming that most people may not have heard of us. Um, we've only been um, in the sort of craft beer industry for about 18 months. But Brugger is basically a craft beer brand which uses its profits um, to fund clean water projects in developing countries, particularly Malawi. Um, so we make a craft lager with the help of the guys at Brewdog and the essence is to just use that to fund wells and um, school feeding programs, etc. Everything that needs water just so that people can turn beer into water and use a, a habit that they probably do every weekend to um, to make the world a bit of a better place. The goal, I understand, is, is giving uh, a million people access to clean water. Uh, yeah, so I guess... A million people is a huge target. It's one of the things that we kind of built into why we wanted to do it. Uh, I guess that people sort of interpret the first thing you kind of get with Brugger, I guess, is that we give 100% of our profits away. But that's not really like why anyone comes to work for us. That's not really a good enough reason to sell beer, uh, even if the profits are going in a good direction. I think that the actual goal of how ambitious it is with um, with a million people with clean water access through the beer and um, is why I and my team and the partners that we have throughout the industry, including guys like Matthew Clark, really believe in what we can do. And it also kind of gives us something to aim at. And so we can mark our progression year on year. And um, so far, we've um, helped provide around about 40,000 people with clean drinking water, which is you know a remarkable number nonetheless. But yeah, it's quite a bit away from that million people target. Um, but when you consider that that's just in 2017, in the early part of 2018, we've actually provided um, about 35,000 people. And in our first year, it was only around 5,000 people and two projects. You know, you can already see the progression that's happening. The more people that know about the beer, the more people that kind of um, become aware of it, the more stockists we get in the trade um, and in retail, that sort of number will start to swell. And before you know it, we'll be at 100,000, which is our target for this year, I guess. Uh, by the end of 2018, we want to effectively double again um, and then some our impact to date. And then that becomes a question of gathering momentum, getting more and more partners and more and more people bought into it. And then suddenly a quarter of a million doesn't sound uh, that unrealistic. And then when you get there, you know, you just make the push for half a million. And then before you know it, you're halfway to quite a remarkable amount of people. I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I struggle to imagine what 40,000 people look like today um, that are benefiting from it. But, you know, that's an incredible sort of mental image to have that there will be communities dotted across Malawi or Kenya or wherever we choose to work in the future that will be largely benefiting um, through a beer, um, which I think is a remarkable thing. But then it gets uh, allows people to galvanize around that uh, and hopefully get us home to, to a million people, which we said we would do 
uh, within five years. But I think that was just a little bit of hopeful and youthful naivety. Uh, we didn't understand mm-hmm. the complexities of it, but we're making a good start. And uh, yeah, we think we're going to get there sooner or later. I read in an interview with you, and I'm not sure, forgive me if I'm getting the quote wrong, but it was along the lines of um, it's hard to sort of quantify the number of people that you've helped already. And that actually comparing the 40,000 to the 1 million doesn't do justice to the, the impact on their lives. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you have to consider with water um, is, is really that it's a multiplier. Like I, One of the things I always say to people is, you know, if I'm doing a talk or talking about the beer and, you know, it usually is to like corporate environments or people who are, you know, in good jobs. And I always do a show of hands. It's like, who who here has a good job or a nice life or, you know, a good family, whatever. Everyone will put their hand up or more or less everybody. Um, and then I say, who here has ever had to worry about water? And everyone puts their hand down because it's not something that we consider, but it's absolutely vital to everything. So when you even if you look back to our first two projects, the first project we ever did um, allowed there to be a solar power tank, which basically provided a community of roughly about 3,000 people with tapped water. Now, that was in the center of the, the village. We take that for granted, you know, in every third or fourth room in our house. Um, but that also allowed there to be a school feeding program, which ran off that, um, which used um, another charity called Mary's Meals. So that the actual preparation of the food was done in a risk-free way. And then a few months later, they actually started um, an antenatal clinic. So if you look at what water enables communities to have uh, beyond just access to something which is so basic and that you use every day, it starts to actually put in your mind this notion that it puts the building blocks for a better life for the people that are there and particularly for the young people because um, from a, a sort of the people who are worst affected um, by a lack of access to clean water are actually children under five. And I don't want to make this a sort of comic relief style thing, but, you know, around about 800 children die every day from completely preventable diseases, but they can't avoid having to have water. And so if you can start to reduce that sort of impact on a community level, you know, that starts to, to add up over the long term and to, to, to real benefits to communities. And then as they get older, um, you know, less time is spent out of school, which means more learning. If you can enable a school feeding program, for example, then the learning gets better because they're nutritionally ready for it and awake and alert and concentrating. So really, when you look at that 40,000 number, if, you know, heaven forbid something were to happen to Brugger, um, tomorrow that meant we couldn't brew and we couldn't sell the beer and we couldn't continue to fund the projects. I still think that if you extrapolate that one community across, you know, the 60 or 70 different projects that we funded to date and the 40,000 people, you'll probably see, you know, an exponential growth in the quality of life that, that they will experience just literally simply because a lot of people in the UK were, were drinking some nice beer. Absolutely. Now, I uh, gather you don't have a background in beer, do you? Um, Rumour has it the first time you brewed beer, the bottles completely exploded. Yes. Um, So I guess, I mean, would it be helpful for me to kind of put into context how I actually got into thinking around the beer in the first place? Absolutely. Probably worth talking about the water thing as well. So I, when I was younger, I guess, 21, about well, yeah, that's about seven years ago now. seems like a lifetime. Um, I went volunteering um, in Nepal 
And it was kind of like one of these volunteerism type things where you went and you built the school and you did some teaching, but largely it was, you know, a photograph of a brick sort of photograph with the community type thing. And, you know, it was, we probably did some good work, but, you know, was it life changing? Probably not. But whilst I was out there, um, we had bottled water that we used and I ended up um, running out of my rations and just kind of casually drinking water from local sources and all that sort of stuff, just because I thought, I was better than the doctor's advice and the foreign office's advice. Um, and about three weeks later, I started getting sick. And then about a month after that, when I returned home, I got quite ill. Um, but I went to the doctor, um, you know, God bless the NHS. And the doctor just down the road gave me metronidazole, which is a really commonly prescribed uh, antibiotic. And I got um, well within literally a week and it was all good. Um, and then I started thinking about water and all the sort of statistics that I sort of talking to you about. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something like this. And then I applied for a job with the Department for International Development and got through to the sort of last round of the graduate scheme sort of selection process. And then I got rejected and I was like, oh, bloody hell, that's not good. I'll have to go and get a job somewhere else and do something. But I really wish I could have got involved with that sphere. Um, and then I ended up working for a sandwich shop and this is where I, I don't know if you've heard of the term magical realism but this this story gets a little bit surreal i started working in a sandwich shop with a guy i knew from uni and um, but the sandwich shop was called social bite and to people in scotland that's quite a familiar brand because it's uh, it sort of employs homeless people in the creation and the selling of the sandwiches and it's actually quite a, a rather large uh, homelessness charity now so we kind of took the idea of something that people do every single day and you know flipped it to be able to help other people um, and during that process we did lots of fundraising events and dinners and all this sort of like galas and balls and stuff and one of them was called the Scottish Business Awards and this is where it gets a bit weird and hard to believe but um, we actually invited and got George Clooney um, to come and speak um, and he came to our sandwich shops and the whole buzz around it made people kind of I guess take us a little bit seriously like they must have been saying well what are these guys got up their sleeve you know they seem to be doing some cool stuff what do they want to do next and we didn't really have any plans beyond you know that day that he kind of arrived and came to the shops and sort of took a few photos in there with the, the homeless guys that we employed. But the more we thought about it, the more I was like, you know what, I really want to get into beer. And the reason I really wanted to get into beer was because me and my friends, you know, we're young guys. We don't have mortgages and families and cars and stuff. We just had a bit of disposable income for the first time since leaving uni. And, um, you know, we spent it on really nice beer and we cared kind of passionately about what we drank. And speaking as an Irish guy who came over, to Scotland when he was 18 like we had Guinness Harp and Magners that was the only things you really were able to buy at the bar and for me it always seemed that there was no um social beer something that you could kind of pin as a you know a consistent um you know social cause that could appeal to you and one of the things I wanted to do was kind of get in that space and see if we could um you know do something with a social beer but I don't think it was appropriate um to do it for a homeless cause because I think there's a lot of connotations there that maybe aren't so um maybe aren't so good so I was thinking this might be the opportunity to do um the, you know to get into the water space and help people get clean water because of the beer so I decided, despite the fact that I'd never brewed any beer uh, before in my life, um, I wasn't an avid home brewer at that point, um, I said, yeah, what could be um, 
what, what could be so bad about brewing a thousand bottles of lager and selling them you know through our store during the edinburgh festival and that's where the trouble really began and so we worked with some guys who helped us sort of scale up the recipe they'll remain nameless um and it was all good we got a thousand bottles produced and then they were all sitting in my flat and it was all good i was ready to sell them sort of next day and um I don't know if you've ever been to Edinburgh during the festival, but there's lots of fireworks that go off. Um, they usually go off at around half ten every night, and it's a big celebration throughout the festival. Um, but I was woken up at about two o'clock in the morning, and I was sort of this popping noise and this bang, 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 and I was like, hold on a second. Surely the fireworks have actually been over. And then I realized it was um, a lot of bottles exploding in my living room uh, and on my bedroom floor, uh, which was quite scary um, from a financial point of view, because that was probably the entire profit margin up in smoke uh, that we were going to use to to fund a sort of small scale water project uh, through a charity called Mercy Corps. And that kind of shook me. And I said, you know what, if we're really serious about this, if I don't know anything about brewing, but I'm really passionate about the cause, we need to kind of approach guys that really want to, um, you know, can help, can help at a scale and can lend what they've done to help us make as much money as possible for um, the projects that we're passionate about, the clean water stuff. So I think then that sort of drove me with the idea and that sort of ability to maybe get some meetings in the diary with some people um, to contact James Watt from BrewDog. Um, and he had sort of been a supporter of the social bike cause previously, and we did a bit of work with him. Um, and we met with them in November 2015 uh, down in their Soho bar, which had just opened. Um, and after a couple of questions where he sort of measured up the viability and our commitment to it, he kind of said, do you want it in cans or bottles? And from things that are literally exploding in your hands like little grenades um, to, um, you know, working with one of the best craft brewers in the world um, on a basis of zero margin production, you know, it couldn't have really transformed the picture anymore um, from that summer to, to that winter. <clears throat> so you've talked a little bit there, I guess, about, about the process of, of turning your idea in uh, into reality. But I guess it's, it's sort of a different reality in getting the beer after it's been made into people's hands. I imagine it's far from easy. How did that process work out? If you imagine that position, you're kind of faced with you have the chip sort of loaded in your favor. If you make if you were to go out with a, a, a charity based beer, okay? Here's my here was my rationale back in November two thousand fifteen. If you go out there and you don't have a good beer, but you have a nice message and you have cool branding, you'll probably get a little bit of a flash in the pan. You know, people will be willing to, to go out there and drink it once. But they'll probably say, yeah, I've done my bit. The, the trick was to get somebody to brew that could make consistently good beer. So I think that with taking that box, we had taken a massive step to the long term viability. But you still, like you say, you still need to get, you know, beer in people's hands. And one of the things that I think with an idea like Brugger where you couldn't go to a bank and say, can we have, um, you know, a hundred thousand pounds, please, because we're going to brew some beer and we're going to give away the profits. I don't think anybody worth a job in any of the banks would probably say, yeah, where do we sign? So we kind of thought, okay, we can't go down that route. Um, 
But if we feel passionately about what we want to do, if we are confident that the product will be something that people want to come back to, then we should do the crowdfunding rip. We should ask people, which I still think is is quite mental how we did it, but we knew what we the costs were going to be for our first 200,000 cans and all the stuff that goes with that and the ability to do a a sort of water project along with our first can run we roughly sort of worked it out at about 50 grand uh, and we went out on world water day 2016 which is the 22nd of march and um, and we asked people to buy the beer in advance you know largely from a beer brand they'd never heard of a beer they'd never tasted you know three months in advance um and also from a dodgy kind of looking crowdfunding site so when you think about that, it actually makes me quite scared because I don't know if I would go through that process again. But we got, you know, a thousand people, um, 30 different bars and restaurants across the UK that bought into that. And we ended up raising quite close to, to 60 grand. And we got, you know, rid of our entire first production run, um, which was really, really awesome. But then, yeah, it comes to a point where, OK, you've got the sort of initial backers they've got their stuff and they're really happy and things kicked off but you know I was quite naive coming into the industry because you know there's a lot of layers there's lots of different things I didn't even really get that there was a differentiation between on and off trade and I'm sure all the people listening to this will have a little bit of a chuckle to themselves but I just didn't understand I didn't you know there's a, a point in the video that we did uh, for the crowdfund where I just basically casually and aloofly say, you know, once we're done, you'll be able to find us in our supermarket, your local supermarket, your local bar, your local restaurant. And I didn't realize there were such things in retail as ranging windows and all sorts of stuff. So we kind of just, I think that maybe played into our advantage that we were so confident that the thing would be a success that when we were talking and pitching to different people, um, you know, when it came to getting rich to market and wholesalers on board and supermarkets, that we talked, I think, with maybe such naive enthusiasm that people, you know, started to almost kind of take us, you know, seriously through that, through our just willingness to, to get things done. But within our first sort of six months, we got a listing with ASDA, um, a national listing with ASDA, which looking back on it, you know, it's pretty remarkable to go from crowdfund to supermarket quite quickly. And within a matter of months from launching, we were also stocked by you guys and Matthew Clark, which meant that we went from being, you know, a small Edinburgh-based uh, brand to something that people could order effectively from all four corners of the UK because of that. And that's been massively helpful because, you know, we're not a providential brand. We're not something that trades off being, you know, buy local or anything like that. We are an idea. We are an idea that you can make the world better by drinking beer. And who doesn't respond to that, you know, differently, or, or I, I suppose to flip it, people respond to that the same way, whether they be in, you know, Stornoway or be in, in Bristol or be in London or be in Manchester. So and um, I think getting partners who got what we did um in on and off trade was very very helpful because they sort of opened the path to the thing being viable and the, the repeat sales and all that sort of stuff which has allowed us to go from not to 60 in terms of the growth of the business but also um in terms of the impact that we've done around 40,000 people those 40,000 people you make uh, regular trips out to Malawi um what's the experience like of going there and visiting these communities it's it's great i mean it's it's weird like it is a, it's a strange process because when we went over the first time we were 
largely promising communities that we would do work and we would return um, to make, I guess, their lives better or easier or whatever. And, you know, suddenly you return and the work's done and you're kind of like, wow, we actually, you know, it becomes quite real. And what it taught me, I think, going back to the communities were that for a long time at the start of the brand, we were kind of talking about, you know, the the wrong reasons to drink our beer, which were largely people are dying because of that. And I, you know, because of water. And therefore, if you drink our beer, people will stop dying. And I think that's a terrible message to send to anybody. It's not something I want to actually build, you know, a good and feel good brand around. Um, but when we went out there, it completely changed my perception of what we were doing. Like we made a little bit of a documentary, which you can see on our website and I'm sure you could post links to later on where we actually asked people what availability of clean water means to them and what they would like to do now that they didn't have to worry about that and that there was, you know, all the sort of benefits that came from it. And, you know, 10 times out of 10, they wanted what I think people, you know, in Edinburgh or Bristol want, which is a better life for themselves and a better life for their kids. And they started talking about, you know, dreams and aspirations, whether it be business, whether it be they wanted some of their kids to grow up to be teachers or doctors or lawyers, you know, that sort of narrative to me made me realize that what we were actually doing was empowering these communities um, more than anything. Um, And it was turning a sort of negative narrative into quite a positive one. And then you get to build up a bit of a rapport. I mean, I can't wait. We're going, we're going back out and um, in a few weeks to see the sort of 50 or 60 different projects that we've commissioned this year. And I can't wait to actually go and see these people because they're pretty much the same as me and you, but they've been born in a country that doesn't have the infrastructure that we were born into. But, you know, I certainly didn't you know, build the electricity system or the water system um, any, more than, any more than you did. But we benefit from that, but these people haven't. So it kind of is a, it's a nice thing to, to go back and to see. But it's also kind of shocking that, you know, you go and you almost are cherry picking certain communities, whereas other communities don't have it. And it kind of makes you go into a position where it just magnifies the, the remaining injustice. And it kind of, you know, it pisses me off, if that makes sense. Like I'm more of the thinking that, Yes, we're a nice brand where people want to get involved with our mission, but, you know, we're also at war. You know, we're at war with an injustice in, you know, our world where you have people who, you know, we're talking about artificial intelligence replacing jobs here and, you know, all this stuff that, you know, the technology and the, the knowledge that goes into creating a system which will, you know, only magnify the fact that there are people in this world, millions of people in this world that don't have access to water. And it starts to sharpen me against, you know, being lazy and saying, oh, yeah, you know what, we're actually doing a really good job. So, you know, it's a mixed experience, but it's one that will probably evolve as we as we go to do more and more work. And sort of a pop psychology take of that, those decisions you have to make with regards to where do you put your next project and of course that therefore that the communities that don't benefit from this particular project that sort of motivates you and will only sort of that motivation will only build yeah definitely i think that's what's kind of focused us to work so heavily in malawi i mean we actually worked in malawi largely through accident we knew a charity that was working out there already and we sort of 
tried to piggyback on the infrastructure that they had developed. But then it made me quite conscious that we have the opportunity with Malawi being one of the poorest countries in the world and, you know, 25% of a population of, you know, 15 million. So, I mean, I'm not going to do the maths on that, but it's quite a lot, some like 3 million or whatever, uh, people don't have access to water. I was thinking, well, why go and just do, for the sake of it, one project in Kenya and then another in Sri Lanka, why not try and do as much as you can within this one country to see if there's a cumulative benefit you can have there? So on that basis that, you know, you can help some and not others, and therefore you want to go back and help others. We've picked an entire region to work with in Malawi uh, with the one foundation called Thayolo, and we're running about 60 projects there this year. So I want there to be 120 the year after, and you know, so that the actual entire region can see the benefit of, of that work. So definitely, it is a massive motivator to go and get the rest of the job done. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of uh, the sort of work that you're doing recently, uh, so the latest sort of Brudiger initiative is the uh, the world's biggest round, uh, so that and over Christmas. But the idea was basically people are really generous around Christmas and they drink a lot around Christmas. Um, which is obviously great for for the industry. Um, But it's also a time where people are looking for gifts for other people or, you know, secret Santas things and, you know, just stocking fillers almost. So we thought we have the idea of drinking beer and giving water. So why don't we actually ask people to um, adopt that same approach that they have? Maybe you've probably seen things like Oxfam's, you know, buy, buy a family a goat sort of thing. So we thought a really easy way to pioneer something like that would be to say okay give us four pounds fifty which is the cost of you know an average pint um you know in a, in a craft beer bar or whatever and we'll use that money exclusively to provide somebody with clean drinking water um on one of our projects so we'll be able to commission more and more stuff so we actually launched that around about December 15th and um, up until New Year's Eve um, we sold two about two and a half thousand of those um, pints and we sort of just pushed it out there to see what people's reaction would be to it and it's, you know, it's been very very positive so that's allowed us to like fully fund an entirely new um, borehole project in Malawi so that's um, going to be commissioned um, in early March um, and sort of take us through whenever we go back and visit it and um, to be able to say this is is what the world's largest round donors have been able to achieve just by you know effectively adding a pint to you know a round that they were out you know over Christmas drinking with their mates and um, but we have really big plans to develop that to be able to by working with partners um, redeem the actual pint itself as well so that you can give somebody clean drinking water but also you can you know in essence buy somebody a pint in a in a well-known um, bar chain let's just call it Great. Well, let's hope that sort of builds for next Christmas. We're, of course, uh, recording this just before World Water Day. That's another one, sort of one of your your key calendar events of the year. Of course, you mentioned uh, that you launched your uh, your crowdfunding campaign, World Water Day 2016. And of course, yeah, two years on from that, what are your plans for, for the upcoming World Water Day? Yeah, so it's our birthday um, and it's a period of time when, you know, World Water Day isn't really something that people talk about within the drinks industry, but for us, it's something that we can we can own. And this year, we're doing a guerrilla-style campaign that's sort of drawing attention to, you know, the one million reasons, quite literally, um, to drink our beer as opposed to drink some of the bigger lager brands. 
and that's using some really cool techniques um, around um, sort of water stenciling and um, cleaning up some um, grittier parts of our cities as well as drawing attention to our stockists, whether they be uh, Brewdog or uh, sort of the Brewdog bars or a co-op or ASDA um, and some of the independent entree places as well that we're stocked in um, up and down the UK. So you might notice that there's some nice fancy billboards um, around um, the city centres of big cities and then you might also see um, some text that belongs to us uh, either quite close to them or beneath them um, so it gives you a chance to go out and hunt them down um, you'll be able to see all the locations uh, on our website uh, at brewgooder.com so if you want to go on a bit of a treasure hunt uh, find them, snap them and share them on socials and kind of spread the word that you know we're, we're here we want to make a play for more and more drinkers because we believe that we have a better beer than um, some of the big guys uh, and we do definitely have a better ethos and a reason for, for being and hopefully a reason for making people want to drink us and, and become and stay Brewgooder drinkers so visit com and you'll be able to see what that's all about. Sounds great and uh, I guess all of this points to really you're just getting going. Yeah I mean I think we're barely out of the, the blocks um, with this. I think one of my motivations is is that as soon as we get to a critical mass, we'll pretty much lay down a marker um, to the rest of the industry, of which Matthew Clark I've already sort of got heavily on board with, which is basically, you know, you're ever for us or you're against us. You know, you're ever going to be involved in this because it's going to happen. Like we are going to bring a million people clean drinking water. That is a fact. It might not be realized today or tomorrow, but it will be realized. And for me, it's about a call to action to drinkers, but also to the industry. Say, get on board with this. Don't be left out. Don't be the one who isn't partying um, when we break that one million people barrier because you won't want to be left out of that party. So, so is there anything else that you can sort of let us in on in the future of Brugada? I take it you're not going to stop if you reach one million. No, come on. That would be silly. Um, we Listen, we're, what we're trying to do is you know, the obvious commercial stuff. You know, we, we're, we're trying to build the brand off clean water lager because we're proud of it. We know it can, you know, attract drinkers, whatever. But we're also trying to increase how we do fundraising and stuff. So if there's anyone who's out there that wants to run a marathon and then wants to get, you know, rewarded for that fact, you know, um, we'll be doing things like you can run for our foundation and as a thank you, we'll send you some beer and some merchandise and just kind of spread that feel-good factor and, and develop the brand um, and the capacity for change um, by using something that is quite simple, beer. People like to drink it. People like to you know be around other people in a happy sense around it so we want to allow that exposure to happen as much as possible so if anyone's listening and they're thinking of doing a 10k for charity uh we can bribe you by um you know the money coming to the Brugger foundation and us sending you some beer to say thank you and um, that's kind of where we're looking to go as well as just the, the normal sort of buying and selling beer stuff um that we're constantly trying to improve but yeah there's lots of plans and the good thing about being a startup and a challenger brand is that some of your best ideas just come to you and you run with them like world's largest round was thought of on the 1st of december and implemented on the 15th so that's a literal two-week window um, and if it doesn't work it doesn't work and you never know you could have an idea which doesn't seem like it could have legs and then suddenly becomes how you build your business so yeah um just keep an eye out you know visit our website 
check us out on socials and just kind of get involved with that story because like i say you don't want to be left out of that party when it happens well thank you very much for chatting to us today alan thank you very much for having us To find out more about Brugada, visit brugada.com, the Matthew Clark website, or speak to your account manager. And don't forget to join us next time.